Hello and welcome to Node Up. This is Node Up 58, and today we're going to do another Node Team show. And I'm joined today by Team Groupon. A great story where uh, Groupon has transformed and, and been one of the, the great success stories of moving from Rails to Node. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Sean Massa. Hello, hello. Sean McCullough. Sean. Hey. Uh, yep, Sean. <laughs> Adam, uh, Adam, Getchy, Adam Getchy, Getchy, Adam M. Thank you, Adam, and uh, Laura Roman. Hello. Uh, today, our sponsors are Joint Clock and Anyet. New sponsor. Welcome, Joint. Thanks for sponsoring NodeUp. So, I'm D. Shaw. I run the Node Firm, and uh, we help businesses be successful with Node through training, consulting, and support. Uh, let's go through and uh, have everyone introduce themselves. Um, Sean, do you want to kick it off? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, we already made that mistake. Unfortunately, we have two Sean's. I think you meant Sean Massa, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a, a Node developer at Groupon. I really love testing and community. I work on testing tools at Groupon, and we'll talk some about that. And I also run the Chicago Node.js and GeekFest meetups in Chicago. Awesome. And I am Sean McCullough, and the other one. Um, I've been working at Groupon for a couple of years, and I was the one who uh, kind of started playing around with Node at Groupon and was uh, helped help make it a reality here. Uh, and I've been starting to try to evangelize that through for other engineering teams who want to make the big the big switch like we did. Fantastic. What's a classicist? Uh, so yeah, I, I studied Latin and philosophy in college. Okay. So. Uh, yeah, really, really marketable skills. There. Like, like all the great Node de- all JavaScript <laughs> developers, uh, comes with like a you know liberal arts degree. That's awesome. Yeah. Adam. Yeah, so I'm I'm an engineering manager at Groupon. I've been working with these guys for about a year doing this Node build out. Um, before that, I worked with any number of other languages, and this is just the latest one. Excellent, Laura. Um, Hey, so I have a humanities background like Sean McCulloch, so I have a PhD in English literature from Oxford, and my role at Groupon is I head our technology public relations, and my general passion is technology and storytelling. Great. And you're responsible for bringing the team to note up, so thank you for that. Thank you. And Laura Laura makes us talk good in public. (laughs) (laughs) I will try to ruin that. We have a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun. I'm going to do my best to uh, (laughs) to, 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 to derail that in the next hour. So that's good. Uh, So let me kick it off real quick with a word from our sponsor. Welcome, Joint, to uh, sponsoring NodeUp. Great to have them on board as a sponsor. So Joint is a high-performance cloud provider and a big data analytics company. They deliver Node.js as the best runtime for today's real-time applications. They are the corporate sponsor and steward of Node, and Joint has a, a cool new offering to support the debugging uh, of Node. And you know, it's now not only on, on SmartOS, but on, on Linux, and takes advantage of you know, the power of their Manta data, sort of smart data platform. Manta is really cool and you know, anecdotally all built on Node. So on top of that, if you want the in-depth uh, tooling that has only been available in SmartOS, you can get that now 
from Joint. So for their cloud services, go to joint.com and sign up for their computing, their, their Manta data storage service. And if you want to learn more about development and production best practices, head over to joint.com slash developers slash node. So be, be sure to follow Joint on the Twitters, at Joint. And welcome, Joint. It's good to have you guys on board. All right. So Groupon's been historically a uh, Ruby on Rails shop. And I don't know, I started doing what I do for the Node firm almost exclusively because of this challenge. I was working at a startup that was trying to scale Rails and I, I was responsible for you know real time services, but uh, the core application we, we you know we got up to a hundred users in our you know initial private beta and Rails fell over. Uh, I was like, that's not scale. Come on, Rails. <laughs> so, Sean, why don't you sort of fill in the context and tell us the story about why Node came to Groupon? Sure. So, um, yeah, you probably you know Groupon has a pretty widely publicized history where uh, we went through this period of, of hyper growth through 2008 until you know uh, probably leveled off around 2012, and we started off as like a daily deal company. So you know we send out an email to you, uh, you know, early in the morning. People would come in, see one deal for their city, and uh, that was that was a very simple model. We didn't stick around with that model for very long, you know, ever since, you know, we kind of nailed that one thing, Groupon wanted to expand and diversify. So, you know, we don't just do daily deals, we do getaways, we do, we, you know, ship you physical things, uh, we sell concert tickets, we uh, sell experiences and things like that. So, you know, you made a point about, you know, the Rails not scaling thing. I, I think we were actually able to get a lot of scalability out of Rails, where we started hitting major issues with the Rails was um, our, in our architecture. So we had this one huge Ruby on Rails app that was actually uh, uh, basically from our first incarnation as The Point. So Groupon started as The Point, which is like a charitable giving site. It was kind of like Kickstarter for like charitable giving. So you and like five of your friends would get together and be like, you know, we'll all donate 20 bucks to a charity if all of us go in and do it together. So, you know, our, our old code base had references to things from the point, and it still does to this day. And we kind of just kept building upon this monolith uh, over the course of five years. And that was really slowing us down. We were having a real hard time adding new features. We, we couldn't go through and, and make the changes to Groupon's brand like we wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right when I joined, I was on what we called the uh, Scottsdale team, and that was a an effort to you know kind of do a visual refresh for Groupon's website. Uh, and we tried to do this all in our uh, monolithic Ruby on Rails app, and it was a it was a failure for a few reasons. The biggest of which being the way our Ruby on Rails app was set up by adding the new visual, the, the new look and feel to the site. We broke our caching. Uh, so we fragmented our cache to the point where the site got significantly slower. Mm. And up until we, we cut over completely to the new design, our site was going to suffer for it. And, you know, if you're, if you're working in an you know, e-commerce company, you're probably used to the idea that you're A-B testing between different experiences and stuff, and we weren't able to get 
solid data, solid signal on whether our A-B test was doing well because our site was, was getting slower. Uh, so this was kind of like where I started getting interested in, like, let's figure out how to, how to break this up. Um, and I think for all of us, we were, we kind of knew that we needed to move away from the monolith. You know, Adam, Adam was on one of the first teams to do this, where we moved some of our merchant stuff out. And that works, that worked really well. Uh, but you guys use Rails, right? Yeah, we, we use Rails. I mean, the, the big advantage we got there was strictly just because we were building a separate small app, not a sure. monolith. Mm-hmm. But I, I think one of the things people don't realize is just how much of a startup Groupon is and was. You know, Groupon's barely five years old. Um, so even though today we have, we're in 49 countries, and we have over 10,000 people around the world, you know, the, uh, Groupon's since day one until maybe a year ago has been you know, growing so fast that we've just been kind of hanging on. So the same, you know, Rails app that was written in 2009 was still serving uh, now, you know, 1,000x traffic or whatever it was. And the other challenge we had was Groupon grew not just in the U.S., but we acquired a lot of companies in other countries. That's part of how we got into 49 countries. And along the way, we picked up a lot of different software platforms that some of the companies we acquired had been similar to Groupon. We picked up their technology stacks, too. So part of our goal here was not just to replace the U.S. platform, but to replace this with a new node platform that could be a single platform around the whole world, around all these different countries, and, and have a real service-oriented architecture here. Oh, that's fantastic. So the, the initial... I guess starvation pattern or picking off the the services that can can be pulled out of a monolithic architecture actually started out with you know smaller Rails apps. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. We we started with Rails apps just to prove the idea that building out of this monolith would work, and then Sean took on a project to actually build some prototypes in other languages. Sean, maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, so we actually um, we had started with a crazy idea that me and one of my coworkers, Keith Norman, he kind of had this idea with uh, because we have this huge monolith and uh, our rendering times, our, our server side rendering times were getting worse and worse. We started building a lot of client side applications in our monolith. Um, it was easier for the teams to to develop in Backbone and stuff like that, and use our RESTful API to build good consumer experiences. Um, but the problem with that is that there's some serious penalties to having their single-page applications, especially for the kind of users that we have. Like Most people come to Groupon, you know, they'll browse around for a minute and they'll kind of bounce off the site, uh, or they buy. Like they're, they're not engaged with the website for you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes. So uh, Keith had this idea where we would take our Backbone apps and figure out how to render them on the server. And uh, actually, uh, we had talked with uh, some people at Airbnb, and they, they have a platform to do something very similar to that. Right, right. Yeah, Spike, so, Spike and uh, what, what, what's their thing called? Uh, I forget. It's on my head. Yeah. Right. That thing. Spike's that thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, um, that was you know, kind of our initial foray into doing node development. Um, you know, we, we had this JavaScript stack. We felt like, you know, we just kind of started kicking it around and felt like, hey, you know, we could actually get somewhere with this. And then uh, I th- we got that through the prototyping phase, and I think we realized, like, it, it was a good way to, you know, kind of wet our whistle with, uh, with Node, but that, that wasn't the way that we wanted to go, uh, mainly for the reasons I pointed out before. Like, you know, that's, Backbone isn't usually how 
or like rich client-side apps aren't usually how our customers want to interact with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, and we wanted to start focusing on doing stuff like SEO. So we wanted to make sure that our pages were, were loading quickly and we were able to render the full uh, page state uh, as soon as the, uh, the HTML finished coming down from the browser. So I had uh, one of the, the nice things, that Adam touched on, we have the, like, all these multiple uh, different platforms. Uh, but we have a really awesome mobile app that is internationalized and talks to all those platforms. And our API team did a really good job of developing a contract that all the other platforms, even if they have completely different databases or are written on completely different tech stacks, they talk through the same RESTful API. So, you know, if I want to get information about a deal from the U.S. or the deal in Europe, I can basically make the same RESTful request and get the, the data back in a very similar uh, uh, like JSON object. So we were like, why don't we just use that to, to render our websites? Like we could, rather than having to talk to a database, we just talk to the JSON API, get it back, and then we can build a front end that works in the US and works in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was, that was my initial prototype was like, hey, let's see if we can just like Render, you know, render like a really simple page using our APIs and see if we can get it to work internationally. And we were just shocked by how quickly we were able to, to build that out. You know, we, we were able to get a prototype up and running you know, with, with almost no experience and no super quick. Like I, I think uh, within three days we were completely done. Uh, and we're like, all right, guys, this, this looks like really promising technology here. Um, and you know, since we had a bunch of people who were already writing Backbone, we had good JavaScript talent uh, at the company. We had a bunch of people who were very passionate about writing JavaScript, and we felt like this would be a, an awesome technology to get them more like, engaged with, um, with like, doing full-stack web development. That's great. So, yeah, so you know, in the, the discussion and arguments, I guess, around Rails versus Node, I've always been pointed to, you know, Rails is great as, in time to prototype, Node is fantastic in time to react. And when you are in a high growth scenario, what you need is that reaction time. You need to be able to evolve quickly and meet the needs of, you know, evolving user needs. So uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's fantastic. That's, yeah. that's really beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, I, the one takeaway, if you guys, uh, you know, if anybody out there listening is about to start a company that they know is going to go through uh, hyper growth, it's decouple your, your front end from your data store and, mm-hmm. and use HTTP to talk to them. Um, it's a really nice way to separate concerns and allows you to like, change the way your product looks without needing to go through and change your data model that, you know, as deeply. Um, and I, since I, I talked at uh, Node Summit, I've gotten a lot of feedback from this uh, that we don't use Rails. We still use Rails. Our API is still powered on Rails. A bunch of, a bunch of our backend services are on Rails. Mm-hmm. It's just not our web front end. We found like Node is really good for you know making API calls and rendering HTML. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, the team at Box. Um, across across the the larger services that are that are really adopting Node, that seems to be the first foothold, uh, and then back from there, sort of going back into the architecture. So you're you're finding that you know, speed and flexibility and ability to to interact and basically drift back from there and you know take over uh, other services in the stack. So how did how did you guys? convince 
you know, the, the inside Groupon to that this was the, the way to go. Was, was yeah. there any pushback? Was it like, why are, why are we changing technologies? There was definitely pushback. It, it was an interesting story. So it was kind of a, a confluence of two things. One is Sean and um, Keith building this prototype and saying, hey, this is something we can do from a developer uh, up perspective. And the other was the company looking for a solution that said, hey, we really need to rebuild our front end that's causing us problems. Um, so that was kind of the impetus. But at that point, we had people build out prototypes in six or seven different tech stacks. So you know, we evaluated Node as the, the thing that kicked us off. We evaluated Java, PHP, Ruby with Rails, um, with Sinatra, all sorts of other things. Um, with the goal being that, you know, especially a year and a half ago, there was skepticism that Node was stable enough or was mature enough. Um, there were people who just weren't familiar with it. And we ended up getting to the point where we, we kind of decided that for the problem we were trying to solve, which is really a bunch of web requests come in, we make a bunch of API requests and format that data in HTML, any of these stacks probably would have solved the problem. Um, so at the end of the day, um, most of them met most of our requirements as far as deployment and monitoring and so on and so on. Right. And uh, we just had to make a call. And a lot of people were excited about Node. A lot of people had JavaScript experience, like Sean said. Um, so we decided to try it, but we tried it first with one of our pages, as we've heard some other companies do. We took a mm -hmm. uh, one part of the Groupon website, which is the part where you go in, put in your email address, and sign up. And we ported that to Node first to see how it would go, how it would perform. And, and basically, it did awesome. Um, mm -hmm. They built that out. They deployed it. Um, it was fast. Uh, it took less time um, to build than we thought. And we did run into a lot of learnings and problems with scaling and uh, deployment that we had to figure out. Um, but it went well enough that it convinced us and gave us the confidence to, to go forward with the second prototype and then eventually on with all the rest of the, the front end. That's fantastic. Uh, we did uh, another funny thing is we, you know, Groupon has uh, development offices all around the world. You know, we're in Chicago, Palo Alto, Seattle, Berlin, uh, Chile, et cetera. And, um, uh, all of us, we, we kind of did a tour around the world trying to pitch this to the rest of the company and say, hey, um, you may not know us, um, but we got this cool thing called Node, and you're going to just rewrite everything you've ever done in it. <laughs> How did that go? It, there's some skeptics. Uh -huh. In Chicago, you know, there, it was fairly receptive. In other places um, where Node was less known, it was less receptive. But um, for the most part, once people got their hands onto it and played with it, they were excited. They were excited that... Um, you know, we're getting away from a monolithic architecture and they build it faster and build new stuff. Right. Um, but there was a lot of learning. It took us, you know, probably uh, four or five months of people actually building stuff to get the confidence that we feel like there's a lot of people in the company now who are familiar with this and know what they're doing. Um, and, and there are definitely a few angry emails from people who weren't on board, but for the most part, we <laughs> <laughs> Change is hard. Change is hard. You always have that. Yeah. Well, I think one of the... the uh, awesome things that we did was when we kind of started down this road, we opened up uh, hackathons at a couple of our offices. So we just uh, invited developers to take a couple of days and just build something, nice. uh, build something kind of Groupon related. And uh, I think we got a lot of feedback from that. It was uh, it gave us a good idea of where we stood in terms of like what the uh, barriers to adoption were going to be. Um, you know, in, especially in our, our uh, Berlin office. Those were a lot of JavaScript developers, and they were, you know, I, uh, me and Sean and a bunch of the other J JavaScript developers at Groupon tend to use a very minimal kind of development environment, you know, 
Vim in a terminal or something like that, but these guys were used to using IDEs and they were used to having really awesome, you know, debugging tools and we weren't, we didn't really know what we were missing. You know, we had done everything in the web browser and things like that before. So we were used to a different kind of development flow. And I think that it kind of, uh, that was something that we really needed to invest some time in was to make the developer experience, you know, comparable or at least go out and find the tools and help people adapt that kind of stuff. That's fantastic. So we recently had the Walmart team on and we talked about Black Friday at Walmart. What was the impact of Black Friday at Groupon? Well, we, we originally, this whole thing was pitched as, hey, we're going to rewrite all of Groupon, but this time we're going to do it awesome. And you can imagine that's a hard thing to get company <laughs> to buy into, right? <laughs> um, and it also kind of means like, hey, stop what you're doing. Instead of mm-hmm. working on these awesome new features you want to do, can you take all the stuff that already works fine in Ruby and rewrite it in Node? Um, so we kind of needed something to spur the company into doing that. So there, we wanted to launch a Groupon, a, a brand new redesign called Prom Night that's live now that you guys will see if you go to Groupon.com. And we, as Sean has said, we tried to do those kinds of things in our old Ruby stack, and it was just infeasible. So we, we went to the company, and we basically said, if you give us um, three to four months and everybody just stops and re- rewrites on this Node platform, then we can build all this other stuff like the site-wide redesign you want really quickly. Wow. Uh, so we, we got them to agree to that with the uh, requirement that everything had to be done before Black Friday and before um, the holiday season. So for us, it was... It was Definitely up to the last minute. You know, we, we, we built out the platform. We built out all these different pages and apps on top of it. Um, and then the first real big test was before Black Friday, we ran a deal with uh, Starbucks, which had huge traffic, um, uh, you know, much higher peaks than a typical day. And that was the first real test. And um, overall, everything went great. Um, I think Sean has some of the numbers of the kind of traffic we were doing that day. Yeah, we were able to sustain uh, a solid 120,000 requests per minute through just our web front ends. That doesn't count any of our mobile traffic or any of that stuff, um, which, you know, we've had similar high traffic days. And this is actually one of our, our biggest traffic days ever. But, um, you know, Groupon had a reputation for going down. Uh, we would, you know, we ran a Starbucks deal, um, begin, like, I think it was in the beginning of November, and we'd run one earlier that year, and our site went down for a couple of hours because our, our monolith couldn't handle all the traffic. For both Black Friday and the Starbucks deal, it was kind of like how what Aaron was talking about during Black Friday. Like uh, We were all around. We were all you know, on call. We were waiting for something to happen, and nothing happened. Uh, and it was, it was awesome. It was awesome to see nothing happen, but at the same time, we are like, come on, nothing, nothing's going to tip over. There isn't going to be anything that breaks, but yeah, it was smooth sailing. Yeah, it wasn't even it wasn't even a, a blip on the system, which was awesome. Um, and and you know this is of course just in one of our countries. This is just the U.S. So when we look at worldwide, when we finish this rollout, we're going to have much higher traffic than that around the world. But it was uh, compared to the the amount of hardware we had behind Rails that took to serve that number of requests and still crash, and the the amount we had behind Node, and not even to have a blip, it was awesome. That's uh, you know, nothing better than you know, not having to worry about your servers, right? <laughs> yeah, it's huge, especially yeah. on, on times when you, you, right. know, you really want people to come. Like, you know, we, we really engage with our customers during that period of time, and you know, it, it makes us proud of the fact that we can actually keep the site up when people really want to come and, and you know, spend their money at, at with us. 
Right. And, people people and then, are dying at uh, you know big box stores. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to mention here too that this was an effort uh, compromised of dozens of teams. Thirty, I don't remember the actual count was thirty-five or so, all working trying trying to reproduce their own parts of the system, but all working together and coming together, and nothing falls over. Yeah, yeah, it was a massive effort. Basically, everybody who works on front-end stuff at Groupon had to rewrite their app um, and deploy it, support it over Black Friday. And I think of all 35 apps or so, one of them we had to add one server because that particular app looked like it was getting slightly slow, but it, there was no user impact. And everything else worked flawlessly. That's amazing. So that, that's a, uh, also an incredible amount of sort of engineering coordination. That's how did you how did you sort of pull that that part of it off? <laughs> that was probably the hardest part, and I, I, I think the answer is honestly just a lot of people working really hard and a lot of pain, okay. um, and a lot of video conferencing with a lot of people. Um, we one of the key things that made this work at Groupon, and I think I've heard similar things from other companies, is we built a core team of us for the technology side, and also a core team of people on the product side that own this. So when we're asking 35 teams or 29 teams are running 35 apps or whatever it is, they have somebody to go to whenever they have a problem. And when the other 29 teams have the same problem, uh, we already have answers for them. And it was really key to have that um, a central source of expertise and also coordination. Because a lot of it isn't just technical questions. It's how are we solving this kind of problem? What's the rollout plan for this? That kind of stuff. So we worked really hard to facilitate that for everybody else, and they worked really hard in return by dealing with a platform that was moving under their feet. That's fantastic. Well, let's uh, before we dive into the you know a little bit more about the the platform, let me uh, stop for a moment and talk about our sponsor. Thank you, Clock, for sponsoring NodeUp. One of our earliest sponsors, been with us for for a long time, and and really helped move NodeUp forward. So, Clock is a digital development agency in the outskirts of London. They are dedicated to making beautiful websites and web based applications. They're also really great at integrating, integrating uh, legacy systems and devices and all these things that you know really don't want to be integrated and talk to each other. They have a hardware setup that's 100% node called SwipeStation. You can learn more about that, swipestation.co.uk. They're experts in publishing customer insight and loyalty. They've been around since 1997, been doing node since .4. And once they discovered Node, they uh, they went all in. Um, have a lot of developers that are working on Node with you know using Jade Stylus, a impressive laundry list of clients that include the BBC, News Corp, Nielsen, Joint, and Hearst Media. They have a, a, a publishing platform that their customers can use called Catfish. That's 100% Node, and you can see some examples of that at SundayWorld.com. Really interesting. So, Clock is always on the lookout for great devs who love doing open source. They have free umbrellas, uh, scones, and are absolutely famous for the uh, Raspberry Pi-based Node Bowler. Fantastic, fantastic project. If you don't know what that is, Google it. Check out the Node Bowler. Really cool project from a while back at LXJS. Uh, Really cool. So, follow 
Clock on Twitter at, at clock. Drop them a line at hello at clock.co.uk and go learn more about them on their website, clock.co.uk. Thank you, Clock. All right. So that was fantastic context of you know what brought Node to Groupon, how, how we got there. Let's go into some of the sort of underlying technical architecture that is uh, powering Groupon's Node infrastructure today. So who wants to who wants to kick off the uh, description of, of the architecture? So we'll give you a little just a little context um, to where Node fits into our architecture. Our, our architecture is basically we have a bunch of backend services in a bunch of different countries. Um, each country or each region of the world is fronted by an API um, that serves our mobile apps and now serves our Node front end as well. So um, the Node is basically the the web layer um, that. It responds to the user request, makes requests to the API, and formulates the HTML that goes out. Um, but it has to do it in a way that can talk to multiple backends and multiple data centers around the world. So that was our, our key goal for designing something here. And I think Sean's going to jump in and talk about how we turn that into an actual platform. Yeah. So, I mean, the, you know, one of the uh, big debates I'm seeing a lot with the, the kind of no community is like to framework or to not framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Yeah, you constantly see people doing that, and I think uh, it, it really depends on your your kind of developer environment. Uh, for us, it was really important that we kind of start from a place where every developer can understand each other's code, and that we kind of set some standards about like how we interact with our services, um, you know, how we unify the look and feel across all the different applications that we've deployed, and you know how we kind of uh, make sure that. Uh, when we're doing training and instruction that we're able to, you know, be really effective and uh, just let the developers focus on what they need to uh, get the job done as quickly as possible. And a lot of that just was a, a required us to look around and kind of survey the scene and see what our developers were already proficient at, uh, what patterns worked well for them, what tools they were already using, and, and try to incorporate as much of that as we, in as possible. So, you know, one of the big things uh, you'll see with... Uh, it, it, with Node at uh, Groupon is that we use a lot of CoffeeScript. Uh, we've why been that? using we use a lot of CoffeeScript. Why is that? Not what is it? Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we we've just been using it. It's it's kind of a legacy thing for us. We've okay. started using okay. it when we were doing our, our uh, client side apps in Backbone. Right. Um, you know, I th- I think there was definitely a, a period of time where that was in vogue with Rails developers. Yeah. So. We had a lot of people who were just kind of comfortable using that. And then um, there's actually uh, Michael Fakara uh, works at Groupon uh, doing security stuff, but he's also the maintainer of, he's a maintainer of CoffeeScript, oh. and he's been working on the CoffeeScript 2.0 compiler. Uh, so that's uh, a really big um, uh, investment for us is that, you know, the, the tool is very popular. Our developers were very comfortable using it, and uh, we felt like, uh, it was it was just something that we wanted to continue forward, um, and then another thing is that we wanted to uh, you know kind of reduce the amount of weight that there was in terms of like how our developers were interacting with the the, the templates and stuff like that. So we we switched down. We've been using in our old Rails stacks, we're using uh, Haml and we're using Handlebars. We kind of cut that down, and we're using um, basically just mustache templates now. Uh, which we you're, found. Are you going all the way down to raw mustache? 
Yeah, not, not Hogan, them. not. Uh, oh no, we do use Hogan. Uh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean Hogan is a very uh, it, you know it's a performant but you know still pretty true to the spec implementation, and uh, that that was a little bit controversial for us. But you know one of the uh, problems that we found in our monolith was that there was a lot of data interpolation in our templates. So when we wanted to you know figure out why some of our pages were getting slower or um, where some of the business logic would reside, you know, in a, in a good MDC framework, it should mostly live in a model, but we would find, you know, active record calls in a template Ouch. and that, that was just a, a maintenance nightmare. So, you know, that, that's two examples of like, you know, we, we had problems that we were looking to, uh, you know, set reasonable constraints on, but we also wanted to allow people to use the tools that, uh, they were already comfortable with. So we kind of hobbled together these best practices and a bunch of other things into uh, uh, an internal uh, framework that we call Keldor. So basically, it's, uh, it's just a couple of libraries that help us read configuration, interact with uh, uh, Keldor. So it, I don't know if you guys are familiar with He-Man, um, but this, this is a really silly uh, inside joke from um, another project that we have at Groupon. So uh, if you want to start a new service at Groupon, we have a uh, Skeletor projects. Okay. So it's, <laughs> it's uh, uh, basically, you know, if you're going to start a Rails app or you're going to start a Java app or something like that, we have these, these uh, projects in our internal GitHub that you can clone. And it's basically set up with all of Groupon's best practices baked right into it. So where do you write your log files? Uh, what, you know, uh, where do you forward to New Relic and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's taken care of for you, so you can just focus on writing your application code. How, uh, since, since this is, you know, audio-based, uh, how do you spell Keldor for those for the uninitiated? K-E-L-D-O-R. Keldor, okay. Yeah. All right. Wait, wait. And, and what, tell me the reference. What, what is so, Keldor? I, I know Skeletor, I know He-Man. Uh, unfortunately, I, I obviously didn't want, didn't go deep enough into that to like really get the mythological reference. Yeah, so this is this is where I'll shout out Jan, who's on our team as being the probably the alpha nerd on the team. But uh, <laughs> he he named this project because Keldor is the man who became Skeletor. So before he was Skeletor, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is DP man <laughs> and stuff. Uh, so yeah, that's that's the the general idea is that we have Keldor, which is this library that kind of handles most of the the boilerplate code of you know we we use Express as the basic routing layer, and then we have a bunch of middleware that does business logic that you know um, uh, picks out certain headers that interacts with our our nginx front doors and that passes um, information through the request to our APIs. That's all set up in one place, and then we have uh, what we call Skeletor Node which is uh, a project that you can pull down and it's ready to go. You're just ready to start. You, know, you add a route, you add a controller, and you, you're up and running. So that's, that's, those two things, we're, uh, we're talking a lot about open sourcing them. Uh, there's a, kind of an a anti-pattern, I think, with a lot of this stuff where people open source uh, proprietary or you know, software that's tightly coupled to your infrastructure or to your business. And, you know, they end up open sourcing something that's not very useful to other people. So we want to make sure that we are open sourcing stuff that other people, uh, you know, can actually use and would want to, you know, bring into their own data center. Right. I mean, there's also, in my opinion, another open source anti-pattern, which I see 
kind of at Facebook and, and uh, Google, which is throw it over the wall open source. Like, yeah. here, look, we're cool, we're smart, but not really, you know, sort of allowing that open source. It's, it's, it's open show you. Not yeah. uh, not open source. So you know, making that decision, what type of open source, whether you want to, you know, really continue to evolve the, pa- the, the the platform and allow outside contributions into into that, and and as such, outside interests and, and needs that you know are solving different problems. I've been really impressed with the, the PayPal team uh, and their their Kraken JS and how you know they, they've open sourced and they continue to to you know, have that exist in the open source world. Yeah, so no. I, I, I understand the, the problem, right? Uh, I think they're doing a great job. I think uh, the Happy JS guys from Walmart Labs are doing Absolutely. a great job with it because they've, you know, they've, we've also are, I think, on a little bit of shorter of a tight, uh, timeline than they are. You mm-hmm. know, we've been, we've been baking with this for about a year and then we added some major operational things. Like I think the, uh, we spent probably more, Adam probably had, you know, spent more time in meetings and coordinating than we did actually in terms of writing code. Uh, there's not a lot of code to to this stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, now once we kind of complete our transition, I think we'll have some time to take a step back. But uh, we also, we have a, an internal open source team that kind of vets things that we're about to release into the public. And we were very um, adamant about that. We were releasing something that's useful um, that it's not just kind of throwing it over the wall or trying to show off like a neat algorithm or something that we have. We want to make sure that we're starting a community and then we keep people uh, involved with it. Um, otherwise, you just you contribute to more abandonware on GitHub. <laughs> yeah, our, nice. our strategy has been, instead of trying to open source our framework in one go, is you know, along the way we've had to write a lot of um, small node modules or utilities or, or, or things we needed to get a certain thing done, whether it's deployment or testing or... Um, uh, you know, making requests or whatever. So we we decided that we're going to pick off those pieces, the ones that are most universal and most useful, and open source those one by one when they're really solid. And the first one we put out there is Testium that Sean worked on that we'll talk about a little bit later. Nice. Um, but that model seems to work really well for us in that we can get things out there that are applicable to a lot of people and don't require you to have access to 10 internal Groupon services to do anything with. Right on. All right, so we've mentioned that we're Express, Mustache. Uh, what node version are you running? So we're on 0.825 right now. Um, okay. This was kind of the, ver- the last stable version we were able to lock on. We actually had a, a fun bug. Uh, we started on 0.815, and then we we're using a rather old Linux kernel internally. Mm-hmm. And there was some weird issue with our package manager and something that changed in NPM uh, 1 to NPM 1.1. That blocked us for a while. There's like a symlink uh, issue um, that that kind of foiled us from upgrading. But uh, now that we've got everybody deployed, we're working on getting onto the latest uh, Node 010 by the end of the month. So that'll be great. We're really looking forward to a couple of improvements that are coming along there. Just in time for the 0.12 release. Yeah, when when is that? <laughs> I mean, I've, everybody was saying like that was supposed to be last year. Is it? Do you think it's eminent? Or? It is eminent. It's awesome. probably a month or two out. I can't wait, man. As soon as we get those uh, long stack traces, that's going to be right. a game changer. Right. So I know, you know Trev- Trevor Norris is about to head into paternity leave, baby on the way. So he has been wrapping up his stuff there, and I'm pretty sure you know, he's shipped final code. For twelve, and uh, so you know, there, there's some wrap up, some cleanup, getting ready for 
a final release. Every Node version has had this sort of last-minute, let's throw in domains, let's throw in <laughs> cluster. Uh, so I'm, I'm waiting. There hasn't been that yet. So I'm not ready to say, you know, it's ready to ship until I see that last-minute feature creeping in. <laughs> <laughs> So what have, what is you mentioned kernel issues have have you gone into uh, run into any other issues with you know production pain points uh, the only one that that really foiled us early on was uh, the HTTP uh, connection pools the request pools oh sure that that silly low limit and you know I we actually relapsed on that a little while ago uh, during some refactoring we didn't actually test that we upped the pool. And we, uh, when we started transitioning some of our internal services to SSL, we didn't change the pool for SSL. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. And then we've actually ran into some other issues with, with that pool internally when we're starting to, to upgrade to 10 because of uh, 10 strict uh, SSL certificate checks. Right. So we have like internal VIPs for our services that the certificates don't match internally. Um, and there was some difficulty in terms of, you know, figuring out how the connection pools, like, you know, there's like a one line in the docs that say, by the way, this uh, enable strict SSL check, if you set it to false, it silently ignores that. If you're using the default HTTP pool or HTTPS pool, so that I spent a, lost a couple of days on that one too. Um, but that we had a couple of memory leaks. I think just internal libraries. You know, we were able to uh, utilize a lot of um, libraries that we wrote for the clients. Uh, back, you know, we were able to port them over to Node pretty quickly. Um, but you know, we you don't really notice the kind of memory leak issues, um, you know, in the client as much. Uh, it was very difficult to. Uh, so we have this internal A/B testing tool. Uh, so it reads up a configuration file and then allows us to, uh, you know, divert into different experiments, and then we can track the output of those experiments. And it just had a, a small, you know, circular reference leak in there. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, in, on the client during this short-lived session, it wasn't a big deal. But, you know, when we were running this in the server and the process was, you know, running for weeks, we would see a slow creep of memory out there. And then... Every once in a while, we'll release a new library and accidentally, you know, check into regression on that. But we're 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 starting to catch on, and uh, it's it's getting easier. I think we're we're getting a little bit more intuition about where the stuff tends to creep in, sure. and I think we're also working on building out some tools. So one of the things I'll plug uh, uh, in depth a little later is uh, by Jan uh, on our team, which is Bugger. So he kind of took the. Um, Node inspector, the the Chrome inspector bindings for this for uh, for Node, and he souped them up a little bit and added some additional uh, features to it, um, and that's really helped us a lot in terms of tracking down these these issues. That and and heap dump, being able to flip that on in production and just get a snapshot. That's fantastic. So you mentioned the you know, rollback and and flow. Uh, what, what's your what's your development sort of testing flow look like? Yeah, so we. Um, and just to mention one thing about deployment real quick that leads into this, one of the things we changed with this is in the past when we had this big monolithic Rails app, we had a, a DevOps team who did that deploy. And we had people that were really good at monitoring and deploying it. Okay. And as part of switching to this, um, we wanted each team to be able to own that. So now each team um, you know, develops locally. So typically they have a 
their local development instance, then they push out to a, a team testing environment, a, a test environment. Then we'll push all these apps together to a staging environment so our QA can test amongst all of them. And then finally out to production. But each team now owns that that push themselves. So um, we've decoupled the, um, each feature of the site being able to deploy independently so they can move faster. Um, but that's also uh, required us to kind of retrain and learn a lot of things along the way and, and teach our developers you know, what it means uh, if for the ones who are newer, you know, what it means to deploy and own that deployment and monitor it and build monitoring and all that sort of stuff. Have people sort of been receptive to having that additional responsibility? I, I think in the most part, yes. I mean, um, I, it, it largely isn't a problem, but it's um, it's been, uh, you know, continually, uh, you know, basically going out there and proselytizing and saying, hey, monitoring is, import is important as your code. If you don't have monitors around your servers, then you don't have servers, basically. Um, and, you know, something we're still getting better at across the company. Um, but it's, uh, it's the one thing we've really learned here is, 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 is we can't do anything without proper monitors in place. And shout out to our, our operations team, our, our you know SREs. They, uh, they keep us looking good all the time. And, you know, we've added a lot of additional work them, but they've they've really done a great job at helping helping us get this done, and you know, kind of coordinating all these deployments. When you have thirty five apps; it tends to be like a couple of days a week. Everybody wants to deploy all at once, <laughs> <Sure>. so uh, <laughs> so they do a really good job at like kind of directing traffic and you know helping enforce our best practices. So you have you still have SREs, but you you've just made the development team more involved in the process. So the SREs they kind of play the. Um, the traffic cop role to make sure we're not changing every single feature at once, and also the middle of the night monitoring role. Um, the teams themselves are responsible for making sure the apps up and doing the actual deployment themselves. So it's uh, it's a it's a division that's still evolving day by day. Uh, you know, we're still figuring out what this group of people who used to do the deploy now is responsible for and not responsible for, and what the teams are responsible for. And, and for those who don't speak acronyms, SRE is a Site Reliability Engineer. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we basically, in the Rails world, we had this group of people who, you know, you as a developer, you push your stuff to Git and you're done, and then they just make sure it gets deployed and then it keeps running. And, and now we've inverted that and said the teams own that. Great. So, so what are some of the tools that, that have been sort of influential in making this uh, successful? We, use, uh, um, we have a big, complicated in-house monitoring platform based off of uh, Nagios and uh, RRD tool. So um, that's our first line of defense. We use Splunk quite a bit for our, our real-time monitoring or if we just need to you know, see what's going on with the server. Um, we had worked with uh, Forrest and the, the New Relic team early on, um, but uh, to try to get New Relic in, we, were, we used New Relic on our Rails and Java apps, but um, you know, it really wasn't until super recently that, uh, that the New Relic client was able to handle the stuff that we were asking it to do. Uh, so we're we're looking to revisit that too, um, oh, nice. and then and then we started actually uh, looking into implementing Twitter's Zipkin, so we could get uh, distributed tracing across our entire platform. Uh, that's going to be when when we get that fully rolled out. That's going to be awesome. What does Zipkin do? So yeah, Z Zipkin is a kind of distributed tracing platform. It's it allows us to it it's uh, basically uses a Hornet. I think it's a Hornet MQ bus or something like that that you can push. Uh, you know events to, and it defines a um, a schema for just defining uh, like what a trace in a span is. So, like you know, a trace might be an entire request, and a span might be a service call. 
and then it provides conventions to passing that to all of your services. And then it, uh, you push all those events onto the bus and Zipkin will uh, pull those off the bus and then give you a drill down view of your services. Um, so it's, it's pretty powerful. Um, I think it's, uh, we're going to have to spend a little bit of time kind of retrofitting all of our services to work with this. But once we get it out there, it'll be awesome to see where we're spending our time. Nice. That sounds a little bit like what LinkedIn's doing with Kafka. Um, yep. Very cool. But you know, having those schemas and, and uh, being able to evolve that and move that around, that's, that's really powerful and essential. Like that, those metrics become you know, your, your, your best friend. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, when, we're, when you're in the monolith, it's very easy to track down time. Like you know, chances are it's you know, time in your controller mm-hmm. or time in your database. Right. Um, the bottlenecks are, are consistent. <laughs> exactly. You know, now, now we have to worry about, you know, since all of our services speak HTTP to each other and many of our services, you know, many, sometimes one API call might fire off requests to multiple services, which might actually talk to each other. The dependency graph is just much more complex. And it got, it got more complex uh, more quickly than we could handle building out tools to inspect it. So we're a little behind the eight ball now, but it will be, we're, we're catching up quickly. Fantastic. So you're moving away from a monolithic service. I imagine back when that was the case, there was also a monolithic uh, repository. I assume Git was it? Was it? Have you always been a, a Git shop? We've been a Git Git shop for almost since the beginning. Okay. Um, right. I, there are a few days. New before, enough that. But, but yeah, there was a, a monolithic repository, and, mm-hmm. and now we've moved to an internal GitHub instance, which is just basically the best thing in the world. Fantastic. It really is. Uh, the worst part about an internal GitHub instance is that GitHub has this reputation, at least for me. I don't know about anyone else, where they always add new features that I didn't know I couldn't live without. So <laughs> you're basically waiting, like that week or so for the GitHub Enterprise patch to come through. Like, when can I use this internally? And that's, but otherwise, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing um, how much it changes the, the, the dynamic of how people develop code because individual people can just fork something that bugs them. They can get some momentum behind the new library they wrote and all of a sudden it becomes the standard. It, it much better replicates the, an OSS feel inside the company Fantastic. of um, how things develop. And we... Uh, I mean, it really works. I think that's the key. Is it really, it really changes the way you develop code? Yeah, we 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 talk a lot about the you know, monolithic services. I I don't think there's been enough discussion about monolithic repositories and the uh, the the power of sort of applying what we've learned as being so successful in developing and communicating the, the social aspects uh, of open source uh, software that that are you know. The, the foundations of what we're doing in engineering, you know, it's much more about communicating than it is, you know, the algorithm of, of, of something. So, you know, GitHub really, really makes that uh, uh, meaningful in a new way. That's great. Yeah, if you're, if you've as old as me and you've worked on, you know, desktop software and you've used older tools like Perforce or whatever, and you think back to the days when creating a branch was like a, a day long endeavor, mm-hmm. um, these kind of interactions that happen now just can't happen. So the tools really do make it possible to get more code out there for more people. I mean, we often have the situation where somebody has a, um, we have a library that we've written internally and someone writes a better version of it and we drop in the replacement and it all happens in 
you know, a day or two all through GitHub that, you know, that interaction would have never happened before. And I would definitely add that since our teams are so distributed, it tends to be the point of contact with many of our developers. You nice. know, it, it, it uh, circumvents some of the, the uh, like loss of context that you get with email. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're able to have uh, discussions and we're able to, you know, kind of track problems over time. And, you know, it, even it just like if a developer has a problem or there's a question on a code review, you know, just being able to mention us and I can, you know, even nice. to say mm-hmm. filed it, you know, in Chennai, India, I can catch it the next morning. And it's, it's just frictionless to collaborate with people all over the world. That's fantastic. So, so what other tools have uh, have helped make make this work in Node? Our internal NPM has been really helpful. I know some teams will use like GitHub Enterprise, and they'll just use the uh, GitHub URL references in their package JSON, and you can tag that to versions and it works. But being able to use real NPM but on your internal code has been phenomenal. The only problems with that, I mean, people have been talking about this for a while, is that the you have to manage that server yourself, and sometimes there can be issues where sometimes it feels a little slow, or uh, when it's cloning from the real public one, it gets corrupted, and then you don't get new versions sometimes, so you have to clear that out. Uh, but Joint's offering this private NPM instance that you can sign up for a private service, and we're going to try that out and see how that goes, so hopefully that'll be awesome. Oh, cool. So uh, before we move on, we want to uh, add any other tools? I think we've covered most everything. Do you have how many how many NPM instances do you have? Do you have just like one one in uh, Chicago? You haven't like tried to you know put put one in India to you know let them? No, not yet. We we haven't uh, tried that out yet. I think just because managing the one has been difficult enough for us. Um, And you know the the joke that I always get from our developers across the world is that they're already used to the internet being slow, so it doesn't really matter (laughs) that much. <laughs> got it, got it. Cool. So we we mentioned you know internal modules. What what about external modules? What are, what are some of the key modules that you know make make it happen that you're pulling in from you know the public npm? Well, the first two I don't think we could live without are express and request. Um, you know, express especially just because uh, you know we have a lot of Ruby engineers who have some experience working with Sinatra. Mm-hmm. So okay. it was very easy for them to just kind of pick up on that and um, you know understand the the concepts between like how to service a web request and what a route handler look like and it, it was also a, a good introduction into um, non blocking or evented programming that you mm-hmm. know sometimes that would be the first real interface that they would have to it um, that was huge and then request is has really saved us a few times in terms of just doing the right thing for us uh, we you know. We, I mentioned before that we had some issues with connection pools, and I think that that boils all the way down to HTTP core. Yep. Um, but I think request definitely simplified things and, and made it easy for us to build out a platform that made you know primarily made HTTP requests to our internal services. Yeah, I've also been a huge fan of the async module. Uh, oh yeah. Just grouping those asynchronous processes in different ways has just been amazing. Yeah, we we have our own little internal you know, uh, promises versus callback um, conflicts that bubble up, but uh, we tend to always kind of fall back to, to callbacks until maybe maybe one of these days we'll upgrade everything to ES6 and start using generators, but it's going to take a little while. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the having that sort of evolve and be explored ahead of the curve is, is great, but I, I, 
I agree. I think that's we're we're definitely a, f- a few months out before that's uh, that's going to sure. And you know, most yeah. of these developers came from from Ruby or you know a threaded Java environment, so it was a uh, there's a there's a steep learning curve there, and those modules really helped, um, especially in terms of doing the right thing, defining very clear patterns about you know how you do asynchronous or eventive programming. It, it was a lifesaver. Fantastic. So what, what, what modules do you use for testing? Testing, I'm a huge fan of Mocha. Okay. Um, we've used Jasmine in the past. Uh, Jasmine likes to bundle a couple of things together, and I just wasn't a, a huge fan of, of some of those pieces. But Mocha is much more, even though it's kind of large and lets you use different interfaces, it's still just the testing framework for the most part. Right on. Does, doesn't bundle in like spies and mock libraries and stuff like that. Right. Um, so we use Mo- uh, Mocha. Uh, the testing story for let's all this node stuff is very. Let's. This is a fantastic transition to the next section, and and I, I know we want to go deep into the testing story. So let let's hold on to that for two seconds and uh, wrap up modules. Any other modules you want to shout out to before we take take quick sponsor break? I was going to say, we can shout out to Moment for internationalization, date times. It's been a, a huge helper. You know, supporting 49 countries is hard, and right. uh, any help you can get is awesome. <laughs> nice, uh, nice. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. So I want to take a quick break, and we'll, we'll dive into some really cool testing stuff that's uh, happening at Groupon. So I want to shout out to Anyet. Anyet builds Node APIs and JavaScript SDKs for clients like AT&T, and they also have their own product called Anbang. Anbang is real-time t- chat. They they r- run internally on Anbang and you know dog food it. It works on the web, works on IRC. You can roll your own. All of the docs are uh, interactive. It has interfaces for both REST and, and Socket.io. And yet, it's a real leader in real time and WebRTC. They have a cool new project called Talkie.io that uses their open source library, Simple WebRTC. You can head over to Talkie.io, as I mentioned, or follow the development on uh, Twitter at, at UseTalkie. And whenever you talk about Anyet, you can't forget about. Lyft Security, their security wing. Security has done security assessments for GitHub 37 Signals and is the powerhouse behind the Node Security project. So big shout out to Anyet and thanks for supporting Node. Thanks for supporting Real Time and uh, thanks for being awesome. All right, so testing. What what's the uh, the testing story? Let's let's hear more about it. Yeah, so it's uh, when we were on the Ruby on Rails stack, we had sort of a traditional RSpec, Cucumber, Jasmine type of combination. And we could delegate those to Selenium when we needed to. And that worked out okay, but we were on the big monolith, so we had a huge test suite. It would take forever to run. And we paralyzed it, and we did a lot of work making fast or slow tests fast. But at a certain point, you just don't want to build a data center just to run your tests. So... (laughs) Uh, that wasn't the fault of Ruby on Rails, it was the fault of the monolith. But right, sure. uh, when we were moving to Node, we didn't want to use like RSpec and Cucumber because uh, it felt weird bridging that gap. And we wanted to find something where people could actually write their tests in Node in JavaScript or CoffeeScript and be able to group it in the same repository. They can run their own tests on their own apps and be a lot more productive with a TDD flow. So we 
explored a couple of options. Uh, the initial thinking was, since we wanted, we still wanted some level of integration tests at the app level, at the team level, we would choose maybe uh, a simpler tool that could let them write a test, get feedback really quickly, but maybe they're working against a lot of stubs and mocks, uh, but that's okay for them. And then we'd have an overarching tool that would run an integration test basically across the whole site, across all the apps. And that would make sure that like purchase flow works across different apps and stuff like that. So that didn't, parts of that worked and parts of it didn't, but essentially at the team level, the tools we were using weren't, they were a little bit too simple for what we were trying to do even at that level. So we tried things like uh, Zombie.js and Casper.js and they just really weren't working for us. So uh, we wanted to go back, we wanted to take advantage of Selenium. We still had the Selenium infrastructure and it seemed such a shame to waste it. So I started looking into WebDriver. It seemed really cool. Uh, there's bindings for dozens of languages. There are bindings for Node. But the I played around with a few prototypes. The biggest problem I had with that setup was the syntax. Okay. So in Node, like it's almost blasphemy to do anything synchronous, even though there are a few synchronous methods you can use. But right, right. there's there's cases well, where that's the, just the what you want to do. The synchronous methods exist for primarily for out of necessity for the the the, the spin up phase phase of Node, right? Like we need those internally when we're doing uh, the the spin up where you you have to have everything set up. So the, you know there's there's a purpose there uh, internally. Yeah, and they're also really useful for. <laughs> command line tools. Like yes. a lot of people write a lot of command line tools in Node now and it's they're great for that. Right. So I'm really excited for exec sync and spawn sync in O.12. That's yep. that's my favorite feature. Awesome. <laughs> but uh, to write our integration tests, the existing bindings were either callback based or promise based. And promise it still looks a little synchronous, but it was still kind of messy to mess with. And I really wanted something synchronous, not asynchronous. So I started playing around with a few things uh, like fibers and uh, HTTP sync, like X, uh, C modules that would bind to libcurl and stuff like that. And the HTTP sync approach actually worked really well because WebDriver is smart about when it returns a response such that uh, if you load a page, it waits until page load and then returns a response. So I managed to create this tool that will let you write tests with an API on top of WebDriver that talked to Selenium, and it uh, was all synchronous. And it's, it worked out very well very quickly. Um, so I started building it out more and more. So now we have this full-fledged tool that we call Testium. And the way that works is uh, you just npm install it. it. You don't even know that you're using Selenium. It handles everything for you. And so it'll download the Selenium standalone server. It'll figure out what the latest version is and do that for you. It'll download the latest Chrome driver because uh, you have to download that separately. Uh, it'll make sure that's all set up. It wires... Selenium up to a special proxy up to your application for you. You just tell it like what port your app is running on. And then it just gives you like normal Mocha with uh, one special method you can grab from Testium to get an instance to the browser. And then Testium has its own API for how you interact with the browser, but it's all based on the standard web driver methods uh, with several enhancements. Um, with this approach, we ran into some issues with WebDriver itself. Because the philosophy of WebDriver is that it's this standard that you can use across many different browsers, mm -hmm. and that's awesome. But what I saw on some of the mailing lists and, and some of the docs is that some of the browsers can't do this specific thing, so we can't really add it to the spec because 
huh. it'll behave inconsistently. And I think that's fair. I don't, I don't think there's a problem with that. Um, but lowest that, common like, denominator kind of a thing, yeah, though, right? Yeah. Uh, but the problem is some of those things were really important, like being right. able to get HTTP response codes. Mm-hmm. Like I want to just ensure that this is a 200 before I start asserting on the DOM and I get dozens of errors. Right. So uh, I wrote a proxy that will communicate that stands between the application and Selenium. So the proxy knows what the response code is because it's a proxy. So it saves it into a special cookie and then Testium's API knows to look for the special cookie when you're retrieving that value. So we, now we can get response codes, response headers. We can work around uh, a couple of other things. It's been really great. But this is all bundled up into this little easy-to-use package, and it's open source now, too, which is awesome. Awesome. So Testium, uh, definitely check that out. Yeah, it's uh, under the Groupon organization on GitHub slash Testium. Very cool. And at the very least, if you just want to be really cool and control your web browser from a terminal, there's a <laughs> REPL in there. So you can uh, you know, open up Chrome and click on elements and do all that stuff right from a, a REPL. Ooh, that sounds like yeah, fun. The REPL is actually really nice for exploring what commands you want to use to write your test instead of waiting for an integration test to run to find out that it failed. Very so nice. nice. So I'd love to hear more about how all this is deployed and, you know, kind of the, the flow there. It's really uh, important, especially for, you know, larger organizations that, that are trying to, to make sense of this and, and trying to, to make sense of how to how that's this uh, constellation in the service-oriented architecture gets deployed effectively. Yeah, so yeah, we have a kind of complicated data center uh, history uh, we had started up on Engine Yard, you know, that was the, the Ruby on Rails thing to do. And a lot of the uh, platform decisions that we have and the way our data centers are laid out is influenced by the time that we spent on Engine Yard. So there's some legacy constraints to this stuff. But right around that time, we, we were basically running our Rails app on bare metal hardware. We would spin up, you know, the number, you know, basically the number of um, cores that we'd have on the machine would correlate to the number of uh, Ruby and Rails mongrels that we'd have spun up, and then those all get um, load balanced by HA proxy, and then with those um, clusters of HA proxy workers, we call a pod. So we'd have, you know, in one pod, we'd have a couple of machines that would total up to about 50 workers, and then we would load balance between all of them. So our current production web, or our old production web interface, we would have I think we had seven, six or seven pods, and then those would all be load bound. So when we did a deploy, we'd take a pod out, deploy the code to it, test it, put it back in rotation, stuff like that. Um, that was that was a really good model for us when we were working with this monolithic application. But we needed to, you know, we needed to kind of rethink all that when we moved to Node. Uh, Node has significantly different uh, performance characteristics and resource. Uh, allocation characteristics in Ruby. Uh, you're, we're probably going to be I/O bound and CPU bound rather than being memory bound, as we were on our uh, Ruby on Rails machines. Right. Um, and you know, we since we were breaking our uh, from a monolith to a series of smaller applications, we also needed to consider that we could now allocate our resources for what the traffic is. So, like you know, the page where you look at the deal is our highest traffic page. And then everything else kind of trickles down from there. So, you know, we really want to dedicate resources to those pages. But, you know, some things like the fact page or, um, you know, some of our uh, marketing pages don't get a ton of traffic. So we can 
uh, you know, allocate resources differently. So what we decided to do, uh, you know, to, to, first off, we needed to, you know, when we made this transition, we needed to figure out how to test into it. Like, we're not going to just cut everything over. Uh, we we want to slowly transition into this. So our one of our teams built a routing layer into Nginx. Nginx sits in front of all of our stuff. And we were able to build an A-B testing framework into Nginx that allowed us to ramp traffic between our old site and our new site. So, you know, if you're going to slash deals slash my awesome waxing deal or something like that, you would, we would be able to basically take a persistent cookie from, from your browser session and say, you're going to go to the new node app for everything. Um, and then that, note, that decision, we would just forward to a different upstream, and then the node apps would be deployed. Uh, we use the cluster module to deploy uh, usually uh, N-1 workers per machine. So you know, if we have uh, you know, a 12-core machine, we'd launch with uh, one master process and 11 workers. Um, and then we deploy it to at least two different machines, uh, and then we will scale up from there. So for our big pages, we'd run right on bare metal. Um, you know, we have, I think, the, what are those, Adam, like 24-core machines? Yeah, 24-core, 96-gig uh, servers. Yeah, so that, that's for our, our big pages. And then uh, we recently introduced uh, Zen virtualization in our data center. So the smaller pages will work on, um, you know, probably two or three cores uh, on a small virtual machine. Um, and that's, that's really nice for us. It allows us a lot of flexibility. So when we do a deploy, we'll take, you know, uh, we'll take one of the, the boxes out of rotation, redeploy the code, put it back in. Uh, it's, it's really nice. And, and whenever we want to scale up, uh, it's as simple as just adding a new box into rotation and deploying the code right to it. Uh, we have a, a homegrown tool that we use a lot. Uh, I'll give a little plug. It's on our GitHub page. It's called Roller. So that's how we kind of statically manage all the assets on our box. We were trying to deploy with that, uh, but that that was that caused us some uh, some issues in terms of um, you know, having a little more downtime uh, than we wanted it to be between the deploys. So um, Brett, uh, one of the guys who works on our production tools team, it's a you know kind of a, another uh, platform side team in the company, wrote a tool called Napastrano. Uh, <laughs> uh, rip off of Capistrano, and it's a it's a really simple tool that we use to um, uh, basically we have since we have native extensions on these machines, mm-hmm. uh, we have to go build them on some other server uh, in order to to publish them out. So this little tool will you basically just say that you want to nap deploy to the UAT environment. It'll go out, uh, check out the current shot on a build server, npm install, uh, make a tarball. It'll push the tarball out to all the machines and then slowly move through the machines. And we've added some cool features like, you know, for production, you can roll uh, a percentage of the hosts in parallel or you can roll one host, leave it out of rotation, do a little testing, and then you can continue on with the rest of your deploy. And it's also got some nice things where it's integrated with our uh, issue tracker and stuff like that. So we have like a logbook where we keep track of all production events and, you know, we, we ask our SREs for permission before things go out. So it's a, it's a nice custom little tool for us, and it serves uh, serves us out pretty well. Um, and that and that process is working really great for us. Um, you know, we'll we'll soon be kind of launching these deploys into multiple data centers. So uh, right now, our you know we're just deployed in the U.S. We're 
soon the same application code will be living in Europe. So we'll be able to do a deploy in the U.S. and do a deploy in Europe with the same code and run for you know, the same platform for all of our 49 countries or whatever we're in now. That's fantastic. So I, I got a little uh, note coming through as, as we're going through the discussion about testing. There was, we forgot something. Sean, what was going on? <laughs> I was just so excited. Um, I, I wanted to mention that with using this tool, Testium, with, it's primarily based on Mocha, it lets us have this really strong consistency between our different types of unit tests. Mm-hmm. So we're writing Mocha, and then there's this spy stub library I wrote called Bond you can find on GitHub. And Assertive, which is another library that Groupon open sourced for asserting that gives you really nice error messages. So we have this combination of Mocha Bond Assertive on client-side unit tests, server-side unit tests, and uh, Testium integration tests. So everything just looks the same uh, except for, I mean, obviously with Testium you're using this browser API, but I think that consistency really helps. Absolutely. Sorry, I also wanted to mention that uh, you can run the test headless through PhantomJS or in real browsers, Chrome, Firefox, whatever. Uh, it's been really, just really amazing for debugging your tests. Fantastic, right. Yeah, you know, going, going, you know, headless is awesome until you need a real browser. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we have like our 35 or so teams are all using this and have been for months. So I think it's in pretty good shape. But I am still working on it in public GitHub, like you said before. Uh, some people just throw it over the wall. This is not like that at all. Uh, you can see I've committed to it yesterday. There's pull requests from people not affiliated with us at all so far, which has been awesome. So Awesome. Thanks, John. I'm glad we went and, uh, and brought that in. Uh, Adam, so the, uh, Groupon's been, been working, getting ready to uh, push this out internationally. What, what have you been doing to, to, to make the internationalization story happen? Yeah, so one of the, you know, as we said over and over, we're supporting 49 countries. So we basically have every challenge you have with internationalization. We have uh, Asian character sets, we have right to left text, we have uh, countries that have more than one language in the same country, like uh, Switzerland has three languages, and, uh, and the list goes on. So Four. we've had we've had the work at every level of internationalization to make this work. So we've got um, we wrote a, a, an internal uh, node module that we call localization that does a lot of stuff for us. So your one code base um, when you run your node app, it knows the locale and country automatically based on what server it's running on, what domain it's running on, or what language the user's browser says or whatever. Um, so our, our goal here is to have teams write a single web app that supports all 49 countries um, with as few, um, few differences or as, as few you know, country-specific hacks as possible. Um, so part of it is the detection. Part of it is um, getting the translations efficiently to that many data centers and that many apps. So what we decided to do was to build a localization service, um, which um, as you write your app, you create a bunch of strings, you know, probably in English. You take that text file and you upload it to our service, and then you have a nice web UI where you can have people in all the different Groupon countries go out and do the translations for you and put them into the service, and your app will automatically ping that service and always have the latest translations in production. Um, so building that, that infrastructure has helped a lot. Um, we've also done a lot of work to centralize the page layouts and generating those page layouts outside of the individual apps. So we have another service that serves up the basic page header and footer that everybody uses. And then we built in support there for write the left text um, and other kinds of um, language and country specific stuff to 
abstract as much of that out of the individual apps as possible. Um, so by the time your page renders, it's already got the appropriate CSS if it's rendering right to left, and you just gotta make sure it looks okay. Um, and then we've uh, also built client-side localization libraries that also pull from the service. So it's kind of a, a top-to-bottom um, stack, but it's, it's been awesome to see that Node can handle it. Um, maybe we had to trail a little more path than we would have with um, something like Rails, but it's, been, it's worked pretty well for us. That's great. So, any last thoughts? Uh, it's been fantastic coverage, and it's really wonderful to see the success at you know Rails to Node transitions. You know, early on, we're one of you know, a sort of rough points in in having that that happen. You know, they've been been more successful with Java.net, and it's really great to see. A, a success story at, at the level that uh, that Groupon is. So it's fantastic. Yeah, I'd say that one thing I would want to just point out, like we, we still use Rails, we love Rails. The problem that we have was our monolith. So, right. you know, yeah. that's that's the big takeaway from all of this is don't build a monolith, make many small applications. And it just so happens that Node's entire philosophy is do things on a very small level and then link them together, link them together later. Uh, and that should be a pattern that, you know, from writing NPM modules to writing web applications to writing e-commerce websites, it, it's a pattern that works very, very well. Yeah, and also I'd say if, if you're trying to sell this to a big company or even a medium-sized company, you know, don't approach it as Rails to Node. I mean, they're not really the same thing. This is more like Ruby to Node. Um, you still need to go out and pick what other kind of framework or whether support you're going to need or you have to build it yourself. Um, so one of the problems we had early on was saying, hey, we're switching from Rails to Node, and people are like, well, what about this and this and this? And um, you know, we had to come up with answers for all those gaps. So um, just even the way you phrase it can help. Okay. So question as we wrap up here, specifically about, about books. Uh, I don't know what those things are. Books. <laughs> Any uh, Node books that uh, you've read that you're interested in? I don't think I've read any about Node specifically. You know, I think that though I would say for us or for me in my experience here, the community itself has really served as the, the best um, instructor for us. You know, we were able to talk with people at Airbnb and LinkedIn very early and get some support. The Node API docs are, are fantastic. But, um, you know, the um, operative thing is to make sure that you have real understanding of JavaScript and how JavaScript mm-hmm. works. Right. Um, I think that's something that a lot of uh, teams, especially if you're working in the web browser, you tend to, you're working in this very different environment right. where you throw away your session and you boot up all the code and you work with globals and stuff like that. And Node forces you to become a lot more disciplined about writing your JavaScript. So mm-hmm. effective JavaScript is definitely a good one. Uh, if you're if you're really just kind of looking for uh, even a tighter little reference, jobs with the good parts is always uh, something that I would recommend looking into. And then a uh, big kind of uh, shout out to the guys at Mozilla who uh, run the MDN site. You know, if you're ever looking just for a good JavaScript reference and a or a good starting point, right. the MDN website is uh, indispensable. Yeah, in doing in doing training. The the biggest gap that we've found in sort of getting getting people up to speed with Node is the fact that you know many experienced JavaScript developers are not really that experienced with the ES5 constructs just because you know they're you know maybe it's only been exposed to underscore you know that you can be very productive in in front end without having gone deeper into really understanding the language. 
totally. Yeah, and you know, to some extent, that was CoffeeScript glossed over many of those. Oh, really? Right. Um, sorry, what were we going to say, Adam? Oh, I was going to say another vote for effective JavaScript. If you're if you're someone who even has a pretty good amount of front-end JavaScript experience, but you've never done server-side code, and you're coming from another language like Ruby, I mean, I think it's almost a required read just because there's so many pitholes in JavaScript you can fall into. Um, it'll really help clear up your understanding. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say effective JavaScript as well. It's by David Herman if you're looking for it. Awesome. And also, you know, node code tends to be pretty readable. So don't, you know, go, just go out and read some code. It'll read some code, help. right. Read some code, write some code. Write some code, throw it away. Uh, yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and hey, you guys, one more thing is that, you know, we have um, a lot of good stuff on our engineering blog around what we're doing with Node, and, and there's some really good takeaways about how we, how we made this move, um, you know, apropos of these details. So it's just engineering.groupon.com, but definitely you've got all the cool stuff we're doing there, because Node's going to continue for us, obviously, for a while. And, and you know, just more broadly, I think that the, this community is really into kind of sharing this stuff. There's a lot of transparency. So, um, you know, the, everybody else, like all the companies that are putting out engineering blogs, thank you. You really helped us, and we're, we're hoping to pay that forward. Excellent. Totally. Like we just published on Testium actually last week, and that's open source. We've got stuff on GitHub too, so it's super exciting for us. All right, so I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. Let's go uh, through uh, closing plugs, please. Uh, Sean, you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. I just want to remind everyone that Testium's on the Groupon GitHub organization, and the WebDriver bindings specifically are in a separate module in case you want synchronous WebDriver bindings for some other purpose. Oh, cool. It's also there. Sean, uh, I'm going to call out Jan uh, Krems, our coworker on the on this team. Uh, his bugger, which is the uh, Node uh, that improved Node inspectors. Uh, it's really saved us a lot of time. It's great, especially if you're using CoffeeScript. It's got support for that out of the box. And then, uh, just as a, a general shout out, I'm really excited for uh, Isaac taking on a, a kind of more focused role in NPM. I think NPM is the best part of the Node community, really, and uh, it's only going to get better with a better like, as the package manager improves. Awesome, Adam. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, Maybe a couple months ago, we wrote a blog post on the Groupon Engineering blog about this transition we did, uh, specifically from an architecture point of view. So if, if you're in a similar situation where you're at a company and you've got um, this kind of giant monolith architecture, you're just trying to figure out how to step-by-step -step get to something that's more of an SOA architecture, check out that blog post. It has a lot of diagrams and information. Excellent. Uh, Laura? Yeah, that's two references to our engineering books. Now it's a third. Again, we, we've got a lot of good stuff coming through there on, on how, we're, how we're doing this. So um, just keep checking back. We just published a post on Testium, um, which, as Sean said, is open source. Again, it's just engineering.groupon.com. Fantastic. All right, so quick plug for me. I have Trevor, who's going to be out next month for paternity leave, but we'll be back with Node.js performance analysis training in March. Sign up is, is uh, available now. You can head to firm.io perf-beta uh, and join us for that great online class that really exposes some of you know, uh, Trevor's deep dive into making Node performance. So join us for that. And then last but not least, Summer of Node is coming back for 2014. Reach out to me if you uh, are interested in being involved in that in, in either participant capacity or if you are at a university and are helping 
helping people find internships. I'd love to uh, have everyone who wants to write Node, you know, use Node this summer doing Node. And uh, we're going to not only have Node.js internships, we're going to try to kick off some uh, Summer of Code projects. So there's going to be some Summer of Code in the Summer of Node. It's going to be crazy. Uh, Shoot me an email at uh, dshaw at thenodefirm.com and I will uh, get you connected to that. So, thank you very much. Some quick upcoming events. Uh, are you guys coming to Node Day? I just signed up for it. I'll be there. Come to Node Day at, at PayPal, February 28th, large-scale sort of enterprise node. You know, have conversation, talk to other people who are, are building and going through the unique challenges that, that it uh, in, is involved rolling out Node at a worldwide scale. Uh, uh, February 28th, nodeday.com, at nodeday on Twitter. JS Fest is coming in March. JSFest.com, JavaScript Fest on the Twitters. Uh, DHTML Conf. DHTML Conf, most importantly, right? Throwback to where we came from. Yeah, I started out my adventure, you know, using PageMill and uh, all that stuff. You have the original Dreamweaver team is going to be there. That's going to be really exciting. CampJS is back in uh, Melbourne, Australia in uh, March, April 2014. Head over to campjs.com. Uh, and, and NodeConf sign-up is open July 14th weekend. NodeConf.com will be back at Walker Creek Ranch in California again. Great experience. Yeah, that was such an awesome time last year. I learned so much. Uh, Dominic and Forrest's session on domains was really uh, my mind-opening experience. Absolutely. Any time I have the opportunity to listen to both Dominic and, and or Forrest, you know, I, I treasure that opportunity. And putting those two guys together, you know, wow, singularities. So come come join us at Marquee Branch. For, for Node Comp, it's a great experience. So, thank you very much, guys, and please be sure to leave a review for Node Up on, on iTunes, uh, follow Node Up on the Twitters, and you know, reach out and support Node Up with uh, sponsorship. So, thanks again. It's great that the Node Up teams has been uh, insanely popular. And I think we covered so much today that, that is going to help other teams who are, are trying to you know, convince managers to, to support Node and figure out how to, to deploy Node effectively. So thanks a lot. Hey man, thanks, T-Show. Yeah, thanks yeah, a lot. Thanks. It's a great time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye.